This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Leslie Jameson, author of the memoir Splinters. I'm really interested in the Google search bar as a kind of contemporary confessional booth, like the place where we bring our questions, our longings, our unmet desires. We'll be back with Leslie Jameson after these essential words. Here's what I want to say about pitching for patrons. It's my least favorite thing to do, but it supports my most favorite thing to do. Share this podcast with the world and with you. And so I'm wondering, do you get something out of this? Do you listen more than eight times a year? Is there something of value for you in these episodes? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then why not support this content by becoming a patron of First Draft? You can do that at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Here's the common conversation I have at parties. Okay, I don't really go to parties because I'm always doing this, but this is a common conversation I have about this podcast. So why did you start this, someone asks. I don't really know. I was a radio reporter for years and getting my MFA in fiction, and I missed interviewing people. So I combined these two things and started this show. I didn't really think about what I was doing. I didn't have a master plan. It just seemed like a fun idea at the time. And I still don't really have a master plan, but it's been 10 years that I've been doing this. So then they asked, do you make money? And the answer is, I have some incredible patrons, but they come and go. And lately, for whatever reason, and this is really vulnerable here, more people have left than joined. I can't pretend to know why, but in exit surveys, they usually say it's for financial reasons and that they really love the content. And I get that. I really get it because there are expenses to make this podcast and financial needs to make this podcast. I will say that every hour I'm working on this is time I'm not spending at a quote unquote paying gig. Times have changed since we got our newspapers on our stoops twice a day. You know that. Our content comes from all over the place. But in this case, there isn't an AI behind this, just an I 
which is me, Mitzi, all by my lonesome, doing the research, booking the guests, reading their work, conducting the interview, uploading it into the podcast world, and then doing it again and again and again, more than 50 times in the last year. I produce one episode a week, and that is on top of all my other jobs, which is why I don't go to parties or really do anything on the weekends except for this. So if you value this podcast, please consider supporting it with a financial contribution. Membership starts at $6 a month and includes extras like writing tips, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, end of the year thank you gifts, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and more. I think in this world, we have to support what we love, and there is an energy there that comes back to us. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and become a supporter of First Draft today. It still doesn't make a shred of sense that I'm doing this podcast. Still, here I am after a decade. But Rumi said, set your life on fire. Seek those who fan your flames. So I'm inviting you to warm yourself by this fire and bring your fan along. Patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And on to the show. My guest today is Leslie Jameson, author of two essay collections, The Empathy Exams and Make It Scream, Make It Burn, a critical memoir, The Recovering, and a novel, The Gin Closet. She's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Harper's, Virginia Quarterly Review, and The Believer, among others. Jameson teaches at the Columbia University MFA program, where she directs the nonfiction concentration. Her new book is called Splinters and is a memoir of Jameson's divorce and relationship to her daughter, who was less than two years old when Jameson moved into a railroad one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. Splinters is an examination of womanhood alongside motherhood, the legacies we inherit and those we'd like to leave, and a reckoning with grief and gradual rebirth. In the book, Jameson interrogates the influence of art, falling in love, and what it means to find new answers to the same questions with the benefit of time. We began the interview with me asking Leslie Jameson this question. You had this one line that I can't stop thinking about by theorist Roland Bartz. Why is it better to last than to burn? And you present this towards the end of this book as a not as a rhetorical question, but you didn't necessarily answer it. You just put it out there. And I'm curious how you found this quote and what you think about it. I love that quote as a way to begin. And I think for me, part of the impact of that quote is that I don't necessarily want to answer it. I don't necessarily want to say it's better to last or it's better to burn when you're talking about love. Um, and that, that quote is from the book, a lover's discourse. Um, and it's an exploration of, of love and all of its complexities and nuances and frustrations and glories. Um, and I think for me, part of the struggle of this book or part of the reckoning that's happening in this book is how to appreciate honor, find meaning in build a self and a life from, forms of love that don't necessarily last forever without uh, taking the ending of love as a sign that it it never meant what you thought it did or it didn't mean anything at all. And, you know, the, the book is called Splinters, but the subtitle, which is so often 
the bane of the nonfiction writer's existence. But in this case, I love my subtitle and it's so wonderful to have the experience of loving a subtitle. But the subtitle of the book is another kind of love story, uh, which means a few different things. It's um, a nod to the fact that the book is uh, the primary love story in the book. It's not a romantic love story, but the story of me and my daughter. Um, but it's also it is also gesturing towards my marriage, which ended. But to me, the book is as much a recognition of what was meaningful to me and what I wanted to hold on to as meaningful, even after it ended. Um, and so that idea that something could burn and, and not endure, but it, but that that's not necessarily worse. And it's certainly not, um, certainly doesn't render it it meaningless. Um, so I think that that quote for me is part of a larger attempt to reckon with like the ver- the many different ways that love stories can sort of change us and reshape us and um, summon us and, and change us. I mean, part of what I read in this book was that as a really passionate artist, sometimes you just get passionate about everything and in a certain kind of way, life might present more suffering because you feel everything so deeply. Yeah, I think I there's definitely an emotional register that my life is often happening at. I, I, I do think this has evolved through time and that I maybe relate to my emotions differently than I did 20 years ago at 20 than I do now at 40. Um, but certainly there is a kind of, an intensity and not just an intensity, but a desire for intensity, a desire to feel things in a big way. Um, that sometimes, yes, I feel sort of like victimized by the size of my feelings when I'm like, God, I'm overwhelmed by this feeling of heartbreak, or I'm overwhelmed by this, you know, fear that somebody will leave me, or I'm overwhelmed by a sense of like frustration and failing to do right by this like piece of art that I'm trying to make or, you know, whatever it is, it's not always a pleasant feeling, but I think there's also a, a, a part of me that craves, craves just caring deeply enough about things, about people, about projects to, to be able to be broken by them. And there's a moment not so far from that moment of wondering you know, why is it better to last than to burn, uh, where I articulate a sense of gratitude to the, the musician who have this kind of love affair with after the end of my marriage, I call him in the book, I call him the tumbleweed. And he had described himself to me as a, as a professional tumbleweed, uh, which was both amazing and accurate. And he, you know, I articulate this feeling of gratitude, even though, our relationship ended. And even though there was quite a bit of pain around that ending, I also articulate this kind of gratitude for the fact that he showed me that I I was like still able to be hurt, that I was like, I was still able to care enough to be hurt by love, to feel a little broken by love. And that that was actually a gift. Um, And I think for me, that's connected to the, the kind of the sense that there is a value in feeling things intensely, um, even if that uh, way of being in the world isn't always comfortable. When you decided to write this book and you had been 
you've written memoirs before and you've also written essays that have an element of criticism in them, an element of just observing our social world. And I'm curious about turning your lens on such an intimate part of yourself and how you craft that and and sort of married philosophy and art, which you bring in to your essays and also to this book with this deep feeling and and how it rose up that it was the time for you to write this? Mm, What a beautifully framed question. I'll sort of start big picture and then get a little bit more specific, if that's okay. And so my kind of arc as a writer, I started out as a fiction writer. My first book was a novel called The Gin Closet. And then from there, I kind of discovered and really embarked on what has now felt like a kind of 15 year, 18 year love affair with literary nonfiction in various forms. And I kind of, my gateway drug, I guess, was the essay. And I did, I, I, I really found a kind of passionate relationship to these essays that, as you describe it, sort of bring together a lot of different modes of inquiry. So personal autobiographical narrative, criticism, cultural history, um, interviewing and reportage, really kind of thinking about my life alongside other lives. And so that was um, the bulk of my first essay collection, Empathy Exams, which it actually feels kind of fitting. It's just um, been 10 years since that book came out. So it feels like a little bit of an anniversary for that text as well. And I have for a long time been really interested in writing a kind of nonfiction that turns its gaze back and forth from the self to the world. Um, And in that back and forth, sort of recognizing that in a sense, there is no back and forth because it's all already entangled. Like a self is already implicated in history. A self is already implicated in all the lives around it. So that to try to write these like hybrid genre books that involve personal narrative, criticism, reportage is less it's less like an innovation and more a kind of recognition of what's already true, which is like my brain is always thinking about my own experience alongside things beyond it. Um, every every book like finds its own shape and its own form. And um, my book, The Recovering, which also had a ton of memoiristic elements in it, I think of it as a, it's a hard book to classify, but I think of it as like a critical memoir. Sometimes I think of it as just like a 450 page essay that many people were generous enough to read. Um, It's about addiction and recovery and uh, creativity. That book, it was kind of a tricky process to find the rhythms, to find like, I'm trying to tell so many stories. I'm trying to tell the story of my own addiction and recovery. I'm trying to tell the story of all these other artists and writers who got sober or tried to get sober and how did that impact their creative lives. I'm trying to tell the story of how has America told the story of addiction over the past century. Some addicts are victims, some addicts are criminals. Um, how is, how is that narrative look a little bit different each time? Um, but in that, in that process, I sort of had to find a certain kind of rhythm where I was like every few pages turning from my life to the world, back to my life, back to the world. And with this book, the splinters, the rhythms of this book, announce themselves as something really different right from the start. Like from the, from the beginning, I knew that this would be a more 
a story that was told much closer to my experience and much closer to the body. Actually, just I knew from the very beginning that this would be a very um, visceral book and a book that was full of kind of lush sensory information that was really like immersed in its worlds and its moments. And I think the ways that I wanted this book to encounter um, art and other voices were also going to be like from kind of from the body, from like embodied moments of encounter. So there are a lot of scenes in this book of me and my daughter in museums, me and my daughter encountering art together, me feeling saved by art in some way when I'm kind of in the thick of it in some rough patch in my life. Um, but those are all, they're, they're not disembodied criticism. They're like, they're the opposite of disembodied criticism. They're like me in, you know, they're me breastfeeding in front of a painting. They're me, you know, walking my stroller through museum galleries, because if I stop walking with the stroller, my daughter's going to wake up and start screaming. So I wanted to write in that way, a kind of criticism that was, um, more fully attentive to the texture and the moments of how we encounter art rather than almost putting the encounter in the kind of rarefied disembodied white room that like so much of criticism asks that encounter to happen in. Um, and the last thing I'll say about kind of coming to, I guess, the gaze of this book is that just a crucial part of figuring out what I wanted this book to be um, had to do with form. And the book is told in, in much smaller little pieces of text that are like anywhere from a paragraph to a page, but not often that much more than that. And I think of those pieces of text as, as splinters. So in a sense, the title of the book is, is certainly emotionally resonant. It's, it's a book about painful experiences that lodge in us and become part of us like splinters, but kind of get under the skin. But it's also really a, a title about the form as well. These take these splinters of text that are like very short and sharp and whittled and trying to give you a particular crystallized moment of experience that held something for me. And if I hadn't found that unit size or that rhythm, I don't think I could have, I wouldn't have known how to write the book. It was, it, it was always baked in. How did you find it? <laughs> I just, I started to write, I started to write, um, about this particular month of my life. That is actually the beginning, the beginning of the book. Books don't always the beginning of a book isn't always actually where the book began, but in this case it is. Um, I, I started to write about this month that I spent living with my daughter in what I call our firehouse sublet. This, when I left my marriage, my daughter was just one. She and I moved into this little railroad apartment in the middle of winter, very dim, very dark. Um, my friend called it our birth canal. It was right next to a firehouse. So there were all these sirens all the time, all these firemen walking around with their chainsaws. Um, and that month that the space of that firehouse sublet held such emotional intensity. I loved my daughter so much and I was so kind of ferociously committed to trying to build a life for her and with her. So there was like this intensity of love, but at the same time, I was also grieving the end of my marriage and sort of reckoning with what it meant that I had decided to end it. 
And so that firehouse sublet sort of holds this kind of radical simultaneity, like feeling love, feeling grief, all of it happening at once. And that simultaneity, that both of these things at onceness was was the beginning of the book for me. It was what I wanted to write into. It was what I wanted to document. And so it was in the process of writing into that month, that firehouse sublet, that kind of elbow to elbow proximity of love and grief that I started to find the, the, the shape and rhythm of those splinters. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. How do you write something that feels really honest when you know that there's going to be lawyers at the end of that journey? (laughs) Um, I think, you know, it's a great question. And I think you can substitute a lot of other words for lawyers too. And, and, and the answer for me is this is the same, like, you know, whenever you're writing from life or even when you're writing novels that are drawing heavily from life, um, or even when you're just anxiously anticipating how your work is being received, I think it's easy to think about, oh my God, what what's my mother going to think when she reads this? What's my partner going to think when he reads this? Uh, what's, yeah, what's the lawyer going to say when they read this? And for me, the part of the reason, only one of the reasons, but part of the reason that the drafting and revision process is important is it creates a kind of buffer between those initial acts of sitting down to write where you're trying to access honesty, you're trying to write as full and complex an account of experience as you can. Like it, I wouldn't, I would never be thinking about the lawyers in that moment. I would never be thinking about my mother in that moment. I, I, I'm, and part of what enables me to not think about them in that moment is to know that there is a long, long process between drafting and anybody seeing the work. And then another long process between anybody seeing the work and the work becoming public or going out into the world. And so knowing and trusting that this is going to be a made and remade thing through this process of drafting and revision sort of allows me to say right now, my job is not to worry about all that. Right now, my job is to try to get these elements of experience out on the table and there's so much kind there's so much work that needs to happen for me at least in revision that's like not only about um trying to write the experiences honestly as i can but for me the 
the most honest version isn't the first version that comes. Like the first version that comes is often still beholden to certain stories that I've been telling myself about my own experience, kind of like reductive shorthands, like crutch stories that I kind of lean on. Oh, I have this kind of relationship with my father. Oh, this relationship ended for these reasons. And it's, but it's, but it's like, I can't, I need to go through the process of kind of writing out those familiar versions of the story. And it's only in returning to the text, like spying those moments where it doesn't quite ring true. It feels self-serving. It feels overly familiar. I can kind of, it's like knocking on the wall of a room and hearing that it's hollow past there. Like there's something hollow. And that means I need to like break the wall down and like, go step through the hole and like follow whatever tunnel that that like hollow knocking sound indicated was there. And so the process of drafting and revision is kind of firstly, and in a way, most importantly about getting to that like messier, more complex version of the truth. Um, and then, and then it can also sort of serve as a buffer between that, like, vulnerable, experimenting, free associating, freely writing first draft self and the self that comes in later that, um, you know, does have a whole process. I have, a you know, way before lawyers are ever involved, I have a whole process with my work where um, everybody who appears in my work um, reads it or is given the chance to read it. Um, and that's been a process part of my nonfiction process for uh, at least a decade um it's a really important part to me of what I do and the kind of ethics of what I do but everybody has their own process around that kind of stuff but but again it's like knowing that I am gonna do that I think allows me to write a little bit more freely in those first drafts because I am going into that drafting process knowing that I'm going to try to make myself accountable to other people's gazes. Um, and so knowing that's going to happen in the future makes it a little easier for me to not do that thing of, let me try to imagine, anticipate, and predict what somebody's <laughs> going to say about this text before they've even read it. Because you're always wrong anyway. You never, you know, it's kind of an act of hubris to even know what somebody else would make of a text. It seems like because your work is so personal and you're and you were talking earlier about the self and it's never really it can never really be erased or separated from these things you're writing even if you're not writing about yourself and I'm curious how you emerged from this you know how maybe you think you might have changed either as a writer or an individual or a mother or Mm -hmm. whatever fill in the blank and Mm -hmm. if that was different from other books yeah, it's a great question. And um, I'll start or like buy myself some time by <laughs> saying that I'm this semester, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the self because I'm teaching a class called the self. <laughs> I teach, I teach, I've, ta- I've taught at the Columbia MFA program for about a decade. And teaching is actually a really important subplot and splinters to me as well. And um, I write a bit about what teaching means to me and how much my students mean to me. Um, But yeah, I'm teaching a lecture class that's really investigating this question of self-construction on the page. Self-construction is a literary act and, you know, how a self is always actually 10,000 cells. Elizabeth Hardwick has this 
amazing quote in her book, Sleepless Nights, which was um, kind of a godmother text for this book. Um, But she says, you know, we always dream of the self as something fossilized, but the self is actually um, many, many minnows who are wriggling around and swimming around and trembling to escape the net. And I love that vision of the self. Like it's not one thing. It's all these little creatures that are like trying to be free, but it's also the net that's trying to keep them contained. Um, all that to say, I think, um, I think part of, part of the process, part of the way that this book changed me or writing this book changed me, um, is also in a way one of the arcs that the book itself is documenting, which is to say, um, I think I went into writing this book, you know, because I started writing pieces of it four or five years ago, pretty close to the time of the events that were happening, you know, just writing little fragments and jotting things down. And I think at that time, I was still... uh, really kind of invested in um, my daughter and myself as this dyad, as this little like unit of two. Um, I was really invested in, you know, the kind of pain I had felt that had like, you know, been part of my experience, the dissolution of my marriage. And so there was a little bit of that feeling of like writing in that space of like pure pure pain and pure sort of like ferocious motherly like this is me and my child against the world kind of energy and I think some of that energy remains in the text you know Maggie Smith when she talks about her book you could make this place beautiful which is um also about mothering and also about the end of a marriage she says you know there are many versions of this book and like some were some were written from a place of fire, and you can see traces of that fire still in this book. And I think that's something similar is true for Splinters that there are still traces of that fire in it. But I think my journey in writing the book, one of them, uh, was a journey away from that place of sort of like pure pain and 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 total kind of identification and like spirit melding with my daughter and towards a place of like kind of recognition of Mike's husband as this like beautiful and necessary force and and presence in her life and a kind of recognition of their bond. And that it wasn't, it's actually her story is not the story of the two of us. It's, it's a, it's a larger story and her experience of family deserves to be like a larger thing. Um, and so I think opening, opening that there are these moments in the book where, uh, I turn on myself as a narrator around pronouns. Like I'll say my daughter, my daughter, my daughter, and then I'll turn towards our daughter has to be our daughter. And, um, and I think that that's kind of one of the journeys that the book actually helped helped me on, you know, was like in figuring out what, how to tell the story of her early life, which is always only going to be from my perspective, um, not from the perspective of the other people involved, like, but that, that sort of turning to like, let more 
in to understand that um, so much more was part. She needed so much more than just me, that she was made of so much more than just me, that her world was comprised of so much more than just me. Um, so there's a kind of uh, an opening and a loosening that I think, I hope, the book enacts um but I know is was was important for me as kind of like a human being writing the book to undergo. Do you feel any calmer toward it all? Yeah, I do, you know, and and uh I mean not always, you know, life is life is uh full of calm moments and uncalm moments. Um but yeah, I mean my you know, I think it helps a bit that my domestic life is like, you know, pretty pretty different than it, than it was in the period of time that I'm documenting. So I have that feeling of looking back. Uh, it's not ancient history at all, but like kind of regarding that time in my life from like a slightly different perch. Um, and I think I also, you know, one of the big investigations of the book is around kind of doing away with this fetishizing of certain kinds of purity or uncontamination, like wanting to have, you know, a life that's not haunted by the memory of like <sighs> divorce or ugliness or grief and and wondering like, are these, are these parts of my daughter's early life always going to contaminate something about, about her experience of being in the world or, or my experience of being her mother. Um, and I think the book lands in this place where, you know, we're um, driving down to stay with these friends after kind of early pandemic. And that, that there's a kind of narrative opening where we're transitioning from like the tight, tight clutches of early quarantine to like kind of being in the world again. And I think there's something about that, that gesture of like, or experience of like opening and loosening. That's a, a, in a way, like a dramatic framework for that kind of opening and loosening that I was describing in more emotional terms. Um, but as we're kind of, we're down in Maryland and it's like, I'm in this state of sort of reverence and finding all these things beautiful and loving watching my daughter sort of exploring the world. She's playing like a catalpa pod as if it was a guitar. And, but I kind of catch myself in these moments of beauty and saying like, is every moment of beauty sort of contaminated somehow by the, the the messiness of our life or our family story. And then coming to this place of like, uh, it's, it's not that this beauty is uncontaminated, but that every experience of beauty is contaminated by something. And so to me, in a way, the question about calmness is also like, I think I do have, um, I do have a different kind of calmness in relation to the stories in this book than I did when I was living them. But I also think I've in a way revamped my notion of what calmness is and that calmness is kind of allowed to, um, allowed to have a lot of other things in it, that it's sort of a state of constant returning to equilibrium rather than never losing that equilibrium or, you know, it's a ver my, the only form of calmness I've ever experienced is akin to contaminated beauty rather than uncontaminated beauty. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And I wonder if contamination is its own beauty. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I've been thinking, I mean, through this conversation, I think 
sometimes I have this experience where I think, oh my God, my life is never going to change. It's like, why is this happening? And why is that happening? And why does it keep happening? And then someday it just changes. And sometimes it's nothing different. Sometimes a blister forms on your life and eventually Mm -hmm. it pops. Like, but there's also something about this idea, I think of change and stasis and motion also, Mm -hmm. because it, it, for most people, and I think you experience this too, when you first fall in love, it is like the most powerful drug in the world. It's intoxicating and you, your brain makes you think that you're going to be on this cloud forever, but suddenly it changes and metabolizes. And suddenly you're like, I really want to leave, but how do I leave? And maybe I'll never be able to leave. And then one day you leave and that Maybe there's like consolation in that, that change eventually happens, but it's also heartbreaking. I, I love, there's so much of what you just said that I love. I love that, that formulation of a particular kind of change. It's like a blister can form on your life and then it pops. And, and I think maybe change works like, like love affairs in terms of this question of multiple genres, like some some forms of change take take the shape of like the epiphanic watershed moment or the big dramatic turning point and other forms of change are more of a, a slow burn or an accumulation of of uh, kind of subtle shifts or something. And it's like the variety of changes that's important to recognize. Um, but I think I, yeah, I, one of the things that I kept coming back to in this book. And I actually recognized it in the process of revision. When you start to notice what are the words that show up over and over again in a book and uh, some of the words that showed up over and over again in this book were like um, ghost, haunting, uh, grace. Um, but the one that I'm thinking of is the word ambush, which I didn't show. I mean, I, I cut out a few iterations because I felt like there were too many, but again, it was like an interesting, it's a kind of a textual poker tell. It's like the book telling you, oh, this was one of my secret thematic concerns. And maybe you didn't even realize it as you were writing it. But I think part of why Ambush kept showing up is that I was, one of the things I was trying to write about in this book was the way that change doesn't always come in the ways that you're expecting or from the direction you're expecting, which I think is really connected to what you were just saying that like sometimes change, it shows up more slowly than you're hoping for. And so you don't even notice it when it arrives, or sometimes, you know, you're putting so much effort into making one kind of change happen that you don't even notice that this thing is happening like right behind your back. And at one point I describe reading the picture book, the Polar Express with my daughter it was one of her favorites. It still actually is one of her favorites, but the book begins with this, like, I think incredibly profound moment when this little boy is lying in bed and he's desperate to believe that Santa Claus exists. So he's lying there on Christmas Eve, waiting for the sound of sleigh bells. But what he hears is not the sound of sleigh bells. It's this, it's the mechanical kind of grinding sound of a train. And of course, like, as we know, the the train is the most magical train that ever was. And it's like a train that's taking him to the North Pole and all the kids on the train are drinking hot cocoa and having nougat. And, but 
I love that moment where like you're sitting there so hard, you're listening for sleigh bells, like sleigh bells are the thing that's going to save me. Sleigh bells are the thing that's going to like make me believe the world is full of like magic and wonder and goodness. But like the world is not sending you sleigh bells. The world is sending you a train. And it's actually maybe sometimes better than what you could have imagined. Not always, but, and it's not always good, but it's just that the, the point is that it's not what you were expecting. Um, and that, and that was something that I really kind of realized I've been trying to write into over and over again is that experience of ambush. You were talking earlier about structure and how that helped you kind of conceive of this book. And it's separated into three parts. I think it's milk, smoke and fever. Mm-hmm. And before each part, you have like a pretty short paragraph that's just a series of questions like what is a robot owl that makes babies fall asleep and how will the wolfman change my life and each section has these questions and I thought at first they reminded me of the questions that a child would ask Mm -hmm. and as they as you got to the third section I felt like they were um just much more, well, they were much more granular. Um, but also what you were writing about was by the end was having COVID. So they were kind of related to a lot of that, but I'm curious about the addition of that. Yeah. Well, two thoughts on structure. One that the, yeah, these three sections were always the, of arrangement or structure of the book. As I mentioned, the book begins in the firehouse sublet in this moment, right after the end of my marriage, um, when I'm figuring out kind of how to start rebuilding a self and a life. And the motion of the book is roughly like the first section, Milk, uh, dramatizes kind of how, how we got to that moment, how we got to that firehouse sublet. And then the second section, Smoke, narrates what happens next in that in that next year of um of rebuilding and then the third kind of shorter almost like a coda section fever um is yeah, it's about early quarantine and and being sick but emotionally and kind of thematically it's about um this this moment in time when once again the world sort of constricted and it felt like it was just me and my daughter um and that kind of third section just returns us to this like state of radical closeness. Um, and the, the, so the, there was always this kind of triptych of, of, um, of the, the first year of my daughter's life kind of before this rupture, the second year of my daughter's life after this rupture. And then this sort of, uh, in a way, this kind of synthesis section where I'm really reckoning in this acute way with just how to kind of, live inside the terrifying glorious force of my love for her and also recognize the ways in which both of our lives um include more than just that love um and then the the I love that you asked about the I think of them in a way as prose poems at the beginning of each section and it's it's a it's a beautiful thing to think of them too in in relation with the questions that a child might ask so much of the experience of having a young child is like the constant state of catechism and like, you know, why is this like this? And, you know, every answer is really just an occasion for another question and it's beautiful and, and sometimes endless. And 
Um, I really think of those as kind of collections of Google searches. Um, that's part of where they emerged from. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in the Google search bar as a kind of contemporary confessional booth, like the place where we bring our questions, our longings, our unmet desires, you know, obviously sometimes for really banal, concrete things. But I think there's something really poignant to me about the sort of unanswerable questions that we bring to to the Google search and also the ways that like what we're searching for is always this sort of interesting, almost like a receipt or like a, an, an archive or a residue of like what we've been living. So in a way I went back through my memory and just called a bunch of Google searches to sort of show where I was at, you know, what's the, what's the thousand dollar crib that like does all the things for a baby that a mother does? Like, you know, um, what are the, what are the time zones in all of these European cities to kind of document this stage of my life when I was like in this kind of passionate love affair with this guy who was like moving all over the world. And so I was always trying to figure out what time it was, wherever he was, or in the first section, the questions pivot to like, what's the average hourly rate of divorce lawyers in New York City, you know, and and that to me is like, yeah, like there are very few secrets we keep from our, from our Google searches, they sort of know where we're at. Um, so I got interested in, in kind of arranging, curating and compiling those searches as a, as a particular kind of window into the soul. Do you know what you last searched? <laughs> what did I last search? Um, I think I, I think I might've searched, I was searching about hybrid animals this morning for my daughter because she woke up and said she had a dream, really interest. She said, mama, I had a really interesting dream where I was in a bath and I kept being different animals. She was a lobster and then she was a giraffe with the head of a gorilla. And I told her, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there is actually a version of that bath, though it would be amazing. But there are animals that are part one animal, part another animal. So we were looking at ligers, tigons, zorses, wolfins. You said in there, in the beginning, writing made me feel like I was touching something larger than myself. And then later you said, if writing was my great love, I often wondered if I was, if it was ultimately a form of self-love, a kind of poison. So I think part of this, you know, you mentioned teaching. I think there's also some reflections on writing and what it gives you and what it means to you on both like a tactical and also like a spiritual realm. Yeah, I think there is, a, you know, there's a moment when I sort of point to the ways that one of the things I wanted from drinking when I drank was to feel in a way kind of liberated from time, like liberated from the endless TikTok of the hours and just to sort of feel to lose time, to to be so engaged in experience that, you know, suddenly five hours had passed as if no time at all, which of course actually can happen in the, in the midst of a blackout quite easily. Um, but that actually the thing that had most reliably given me that sense of being so immersed in experience that I lost track of time was, was, was writing. Not always. Sometimes when you're, when the writing's not going well, you're sort of painfully aware of like, Oh, it was 10 Oh eight. And now it's 10 Oh nine. You know, like that's real too. But that, that sense of sort of 
what's what is actually glorious and miraculous about writing and and even weirdly writing from personal experience can sometimes make me feel like I forget the self or leave the self behind because I feel so fully inside of the text inside of the thing that I'm making um and I really wanted to honor that that kind of uh that miraculous quality of creative labor and creative work, at least as I've experienced it. But I also, you know, I'm always interested in like the next turn of the screw. And I think for me, something I'm like struggled with in my life as a writer. And I feel so lucky to even get to be a writer and to get to do this thing that I love. It's like, you know, this feeling of deep artistic commitment that feels like in a way very pure right is always is always kind of tangled up with these other desires that feel to me less quote-unquote pure like when I write a book I want people to love it I want people to buy it I want it to sell really well I want people to think I'm great you know and like those kind of moments of um, or those moments of awareness of my own ego or vanity. It's like, I wish so badly that you could just separate out like the pure intentions from the impure intentions. And that I could just live entirely as this sort of spiritual, ethereal, artistic creature who didn't care about praise and affirmation and only cared about giving the world a, a beautiful thing. But again, it's kind of like the the realization that no beauty is uncontaminated, right? That like all of these motivations just kind of live in this unholy symphony altogether. And that when I make art, I'm not making it for one reason. I'm making it for 10 reasons. I'm making it because, because I feel kind of this commitment to, to trying to make something meaningful and giving it to the world that I want to give some reader I might never meet a version of the experience of just gratitude that I've felt as a reader for things that I've read. Um, but also that there are these like kind of pettier, more um, ego-driven motivations and that like maybe I could just let them be part of the frame or let them be part of the story rather than uh, either denying them or giving them so much power that they like are allowed to ruin everything simply by the fact of their presence at all. So I wanted to write about making art in a way that um, tried to speak to some of that complexity rather than offering this sort of reductive or mythologized version of it that, that in a way kind of uh, capitulated to these delusions of, of, of purity or virtue that, that I think corrode us all. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? It's actually from, um, from the book I mentioned earlier, Elizabeth Hardwick's Sleepless Nights, um, which is... Uh, among other things, um, a story of divorce, even though it doesn't announce it very explicitly. Um, but I'm just going to read, but it was a really important text for me as I was writing this book. It lived on my bedside table, um, like tempting fate, sleepless nights, uh, 
for for years, actually. And I'm just going to read this one passage. A lot of the book, uh, the book includes these letters. And this is one of them. 1962, dearest M, here I am back in New York on 67th Street in a high, steep place with long, dirty windows. In the late afternoon, in the gloom of the winter sky, I sometimes imagine it is Edinburgh in the 90s. I have never been to Edinburgh, but I like cities of reasonable size, provincial capitals. Still, it is definitely New York here, underfoot and overhead. The passage from Boston was not easy. Not unlike a crossing of the ocean or of the country itself, all your things to be dragged over the mountains. I can say that the trestle table and the high boy were ill-prepared for the sudden exile, the change of government as it was in a way for me. Well, fumed oak stands in the corner, bottles and ice bucket on top. Five of the Naval Academy plates are broken. The clocks have had their terminal stroke and will never again know life. The old bureaus stand fixed, humiliated, chipped. Of course, these things are not mine. I think they are usually spoken of as ours. That tea bag of a word which steeps in the conditional. Love, love, Elizabeth. Tell me why you chose that. First of all, I love, I love that it's writing about the rupturing of a home in this very indirect but poignant way through, you know, the passage from Boston to New York is, uh, among other things, the passage from sort of married life to a life in the aftermath. And, you know, in paying this very careful attention to the kind of wear of that journey on all of these objects, um, she's she's giving us some sense of the kind of brutality of that passage without without stating it so overtly or heavy handedly. And, and then I just love those closing lines. Um, again, a kind of pivot around a, a pronoun to say these objects are not mine, but ours. And then that, that tea bag of a word that always steeps in the conditional, that recognition of the way that the parts of experience that are shared, a marriage, a high boy, uh, a love, a life, a child, you know, that there's a, there's a conditionality and a precarity, um, underneath those forms of stability and that there's something terrifying about that conditionality, but also something, um, there's a kind of possibility when those things break that we're afraid of, of breaking. So there's a lot in that passage that was, um, that just feels so connected to the forms of terror and rebirth that I'm trying to explore in the book. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you liked? I chose a passage um, that changed in some important ways across various drafts of the book. It's from close to the beginning, the, the firehouse sublet that I was describing. The first class I taught that semester of our separation, when my life consisted of sublet hunting, angry texts, and taking care of the baby or else getting her to childcare. I arrived at class with my pulse loud against my temple, skittery from too much caffeine. My heart was a hive of bees in my chest. My students tucked their hair behind their ears and picked at their cuticles and took turns telling me what they wanted to write about. Labiaplasty, chronic pain, 
getting caught in an avalanche. They didn't know it, but they were all my children. My beehive heart had enough love for all of them. Once you're finally out of a broken marriage, it feels like you're just dripping with love. Or at least it felt that way to me, like it was a heap of bubble bath suds growing larger and larger all around me. I wanted to slather it across the whole world. That was me in my bathtub next to the fire station. Me with my baby taking care of business in every room of our birth canal. She needed to take the spoons out of the spoon rack. She needed to take all the baby jeggings out of the baby jegging drawer. She needed to play her rainbow xylophone like it was a creature that had wronged her. Like she was telling me, you better get on your knees. You better get on the floor and start listening. Watching her slam the meat of her tiny palms against the wooden slats, I almost turned to the phantom of her father beside me so we could watch her together. Then caught myself. Would every moment of our happiness carry this weight tucked inside of it? Do you want to say anything else about that? Well, the one thing I'll say about it is that part of that passage emerged quite easily, like the 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 details um, and the emotional dimension of like loving my students and kind of bringing this like over exuberant love to them as I was going through this difficult time and this careful attention to my my daughter as this little organizer for baby jeggings and but the part that was hard and that came in only very late and in response to an edit of some notes from a friend was not ending just on that moment of noticing my daughter but but that final paragraph where I come to a question would every moment of our happiness carry this grief tucked inside of it um to really try to offer a reader a question quite early on in the book that they could understand as the as one of the emotional engines of the book and as the kind of journey that we were on and this was a note from my friend Harriet, who's a really important reader for me and friend. Her wisdom shows up several times in the book, actually. And, you know, she she said, I think it's important for you to invite a reader in with a few more kind of grounding questions that will help them understand what what journey they're on. And I realized that she was right. And I also came to understand some of those fundamental questions in a text also as invitations to a reader like even if you haven't had a child or been divorced or been married like maybe you have come to a moment in your life where you have wondered is every moment of my happiness going to have this grief tucked inside of it and in a way that question is inviting you into this book regardless of, or it wants to invite you into this book regardless of how many of the particular experiences you share where do you write? I write um, at a desk in my bedroom. And it's the first time I moved into the place where I live now about two and a half years ago, a little more than that, actually. And it's the first time I've ever had a desk in a New York residence. And uh, so I'm, it's thrilling. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, my daughter is my reliable invitation away from writing. Um, uh, yeah, I think that the kind of daily rhythms of taking care of her are not only 
necessary to everyone's survival, but also a kind of a useful, um, just a, a constant outside to the act of writing and, and the inside of my own head. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Mm, I have some friends who have been my early readers for a couple of decades now. My friend Colleen, uh, my friend Harriet, uh, my friend Nam, my friend Robin. Um, these are other writers um, whose work I've been reading for years, who've been reading my work for years. And um, just like not a day that goes by that I don't <laughs> thank God in the universe for them. How have you dealt with rejection? I like talking about rejection. I like talking about rejection with my friends. I like talking about rejection with my students. I like giving my students a place to talk about their rejection. I really feel like it's like a, it's kind of like a, a smelly room that's gotten the air is stale because it's closed off and talk, talking about it, just being like, I do get rejection. I do get rejected. And this is what it's like in hearing other people say, this was the time I got rejected. It feels like opening a window in that room and just like letting the oxygen in. And what is your favorite word? Um, my favorite word today is grace. Um, I love how it sounds and I love, I love the kind of surprise and, and, and texture of it. If you like today's show with Leslie Jameson, author of the memoir Splinters, check out my other two interviews with her. We talked about her essay collection, The Empathy Exams, and Make It Scream, Make It Burn. We covered topics like why people pursue goals without clear reasons, curating the self, and nostalgia. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 440 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Diane Seuss, Deborah Spark, and Kylie Reed. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.